Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's the afternoon of Monday the 20th of July 1953 and the New South Wales Rugby League's doctor, Len Greenberg, takes a strange phone call at his Macquarie Street surgery. At the other end of the line is a distressed sounding woman and she says, quote, This is Mrs Wilkin. I have read in the morning paper where Lullum, a footballer, playing for Balmain at Leichhardt on Saturday, was sick during the game. My husband put rat poison in Lullum's beer. Then the woman hangs up. Dr Greenberg thinks it's nothing more than a crank call. After all, it's been reported in the newspapers that Bob Lullum isn't well, and anyone who saw his disastrous game against Canary Bankstown on Saturday will confirm that something was off. But as far as Dr Greenberg's aware, Bob, who he's known for years and who he's treated in the past few months for injuries, doesn't have anything more than a touch of the flu. To be sure, though, he puts in a call to Bob's house in Ride. When he hears what's wrong, he's immediately concerned that the woman on the phone was telling the truth. Bob's suffering chest and stomach pains, his limbs are sore, numb, cold, and he has the sensation of pins and needles, and he's been vomiting. Dr Greenberg hangs up and makes another call, this one to Sydney's Criminal Investigation Bureau. There, Chief Superintendent Joe Ramus details two of his men, Detective Sergeant George Davis and Detective Keith Paul, to visit the ailing footballer. The officers arrive at 8pm. Bob's in bed and his young wife Judy and mother-in-law Veronica are doting on him. The footy star explains his symptoms, says they started after the Tigers beat the Sea Eagles on Saturday the 4th of July. He'd had a great game that day, scoring all 13 of Balmain's points, but had been suffering chest pains when he came off the field. 
Bob tells the detectives that his symptoms got worse the following Saturday and he'd seen Balmain's doctor, who reckoned he was suffering from an ulcer and nerves and prescribed him some tablets. Since then, he says, he's been getting sicker and sicker. Veronica pipes up to say that she'd rung Balmain's doctor that afternoon to ask him to come over, but he'd said it was too far and that Bob should come and see him tomorrow. Judy adds that Bob vomited that afternoon after taking the tablets the doctor had prescribed. Detective Sergeant Davis asks Bob whether his hair is falling out. The rugby league star tugs at his trademark sandy blonde locks and says, quote, No, seems alright. Then Detective Sergeant Davis tells Bob, his wife and mother-in-law about a woman called Mrs. Wilkin who that afternoon has phoned Dr. Greenberg claiming her husband put rat poison in Bob's beer. Bob says that's funny because he doesn't know anyone named Wilkin. Judy and her mother confirm that they don't either. Anyway, Bob tells Detective Sergeant Davis, someone would hardly have been able to poison his beer. Yes, he's in the habit of going to the Sawdust Hotel in Gladesville after work, but, quote, I always drink on my own and never put the glass down. Even though Bob's hair isn't falling out, as cops working in Sydney in 1953, Detective Sergeant Davis and Detective Paul know what to look for in cases where people have been sickened or killed by rat poison. And now Detective Sergeant Davis tells Bob, quote, From the symptoms, there is no doubt that you are suffering from thallium poisoning. Bob Lullum can't believe it. He knows... Everyone in Australia knows, because it's been all over the news for the past two years, that thallium sulphate, marketed as Thalrat, kills people. If Detective Sergeant Davis is right, Bob Lullum, 26-year-old star Balmain player, might be about to die an agonising death. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part two of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Poisoned Footy Player. Produced by the Sayers Allport Chemical Company of Sydney, Thalrat had been available in Australia since the late 1930s, although it had mainly been used by professional exterminators who advertised their services with modest notices in newspaper classifieds. From the early 1940s, little text ads started popping up in newspapers, in which chemists and hardware stores spruiked Thalrat's availability and its effectiveness. By the end of the decade, Sayers was running its own campaigns with a series of memorable illustrated ads. One had the Thalrat bottle beside a folklore figure leading an army of doomed vermin. The tagline? Pied Piper in a one-ounce bottle. While there were plenty of rodenticides on the market, Thalrat's promise was that it would eliminate the problem of a dead rodent rotting in your walls or beneath your floorboards. As one ad read, quote, Thalrat, the original thallium sulfate rat poison, kills rats quickly, collapsing their lungs and driving them outside to the fresh air. Thalrat is clean, effective and quick. Another ad showed a bottle standing over three of its dead rat victims and explained more of the product's benefits. Quote, Simply soak your bait in Sayers Thalrat and leave it in a suitable place. It is odourless and tasteless, therefore rats readily take the baits. Thalrat is a sure scientific way of killing rodent pests, obtainable from all chemists and stores. Another of the ad campaign's promises was, quote, swift, sure, safe. 
Valrac came in three sizes, one ounce for two and six, two ounces for four and three, and the jumbo 16 ounce bottle for 25 shillings. As an effective rodenticide in Rat Plague Sydney, Thalrat had been declared exempt from the 1902 Poisons Act. That meant anyone could buy it without proving their identity or stating why they needed it. Thalrat was a 2.5% solution of thallium sulphate in water that had been coloured blue with vegetable dye. If left for a time or simply heated, that vegetable dye became a sediment, leaving a clear liquid poison that also happened to be odourless and tasteless. A one ounce bottle of Thalrat contained 10.9 grams of thallium sulphate. That was enough to kill a susceptible adult. Tip the contents of a two ounce bottle of Thalrat into someone's drink or food and they were as good as dead. Thallium poisoning was a slow and unpleasant way to die. Symptoms began one or two days after ingestion and included vomiting, diarrhea and paresthesia, that is, pins and needles or the feeling of having ants under your skin. As the poison attacked the organs and central nervous system, victims suffered lethargy, increasing sensitivity to pain and muscular weakness that crept up from the legs. Then their hair would start to fall out and they'd suffer cranial nerve impairment which could lead to blindness and problems with hearing, taste, smell, speech and balance and even facial expressions. Mental confusion and hysteria was also common and then finally came coma and death. If ever there was such a thing as a murder craze, it had to be the Thalrat killings and attempted killings in Australia right in the middle of the 20th century. Though they'd make the headlines from 1952, they'd actually started five years earlier and had gone undetected due to the poison's properties and how its slow action could be mistaken for some sort of mysterious illness. The first of these slow motion homicides was committed in April 1947. That was the month a Newtown man named Desmond Butler took ill. His sickness baffled doctors and it took him 15 months to die in a Sydney mental institution. An inquest returned a verdict of natural causes. In November 1951, his widow, Yvonne, remarried a man named Bertram Fletcher and in March 1952, he was admitted to the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. Two weeks later, he was dead. This time, however, doctors refused to sign a death certificate. A post-mortem couldn't establish the cause of death, but government analyst Dr H.B. Taylor and his assistant Alan MacDonald examined the dead man's organs and eventually established the presence of thallium. Meanwhile, detectives, including notoriously corrupt hardman Fred Cray, who two decades later would be implicated in the disappearance of Sydney anti-development activist Juanita Nielsen, had Avon's first husband, Desmond Butler, exhumed. Tests on the remains showed that he had thallium in him also. On the 19th of May 1952, the Sun's front page headline screamed, Wife is charged with killing two husbands. Yvonne Fletcher was convicted and sentenced to death, but this would be commuted to life behind bars. Serving her time at Long Bay Jail, Yvonne would work as, of all things, a prison cook. Yvonne wasn't alone in her enthusiasm for Thalrat. 
In Cowra, in August in 1952, a 50-year-old woman named Ruby Norton was charged with the Thalia murder of Alan Williams, the man her daughter had been going to marry and who'd lived with them for three years. Despite strong witness evidence that Ruby had sought out Thalrat to kill Alan, the jury acquitted her in October that year. But the undisputed queen of thallium killings was Caroline Grills, a cheerful-looking granny in her mid-sixties who could have totted straight out of the film Arsenic and Old Lace. Since 1947, Caroline had been serving up thallium-spiked cakes and cups of tea to her in-laws and also to a friend of her mother's. It wasn't until May 1953, when she tried and failed to kill her sister-in-law and that woman's daughter, that the police started to look into the deaths of people in Caroline's immediate circle. She was arrested and charged with four murders. And in July of 1953, Caroline was still awaiting trial. It's fair to say that Australia was enthralled by the Thalrat murder wave. In total, there had been 10 deaths and 46 poisonings made public since March 1952. Now, national celebrity Bob Lullum appeared to be the latest victim. At his house that Monday evening, Detective Sergeant Davis got Bob to provide a urine sample. Then the detective called the government medical officer and was advised that there was no point in taking Bob to hospital that night. The next day, Tuesday the 21st of July, Detective Sergeant Davis took the urine sample to the government analyst and soon after received a report confirming his suspicions. Detective Sergeant Davis made arrangements for Bob to be admitted to the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital and picked him up in a police car at 3 o'clock that afternoon, along with Judy and Veronica. At the hospital, Bob was examined by Dr John Alsop. The good news was that the doctor didn't think that Bob was in danger of dying, though everything would depend on how much of the poison he'd ingested, how long ago it had been, and how much his body had been able to eliminate. They'd have a better idea about all of this after more tests were done on samples of his hair and urine. Some of Sydney's earlier Thalrat poisonings had been suicides and attempted suicides, but Detective Sergeant Davis had already ruled this out in Bob's case. That left only two explanations. Someone had deliberately poisoned him, or somehow he'd accidentally ingested the poison. Detective Sergeant Davis thought that the latter was almost impossible. That meant he and Detective Paul were hunting a would-be murderer. At the hospital, Bob's mother-in-law, Veronica, pressed Detective Sergeant Davis about this, saying, quote, I suppose you will be making inquiries about this? He replied, certainly, now that we know he has thallium. Veronica was glad he was on the case, saying, quote, I hope you find out who did it. As Bob Lullum settled into his hospital bed, attended by his wife and mother-in-law, Detective Sergeant Davis and Detective Paul started making inquiries with his friends, workmates and teammates. What they found was that no one had a bad word to say about him. For instance, Balmain's club treasurer said Bob was a tower of strength to the team and, quote, The people who booed Bobby on Saturday will be feeling ashamed of themselves today. Bobby is a quiet type of boy, an ideal club member, and everyone is sorry to hear of this. While the police went about their work, Sydney's newspaper reporters went about theirs. And from here on in, they'd be all over the story of the attempted murder of the handsome young sports star. On Wednesday the 22nd of July, the Sun's front page headline asked, 
Who poisoned Bobby Lullum? The victim certainly didn't know. He told the newspaper, quote, I didn't think I had any enemies. Judy said, quote, I can't understand how this could have happened to Bobby. Plaintively, she asked, why has this happened? Speaking to the Sydney Morning Herald, Judy's mother Veronica said, quote, Bob has been ill for a week, but we thought he had caught gastric influenza. I'm sure no one had anything against him. He is popular with everyone. Both my daughter and myself have just returned from the hospital and are both upset. Doctors told us that Bob would get well. Maybe so, but Bob's hair had now started to fall out. Alf Monty, Judy's father, Veronica's estranged husband, Bob's father-in-law, suggested that Bob might have been poisoned by a disgruntled footy fan who'd lost money on a bet. He told The Sun, quote, if it is true that someone put thallium in Bobby's beer, as has been suggested, it could easily have been done in the dressing room after a football match. Anybody can walk into the players' dressing rooms at suburban grounds. Fans shower the winning team with congratulations in the dressing rooms, and it is not uncommon for players to be handed a glass of beer. Police were said to be looking into this angle. Then there was a mysterious phone call to the Criminal Investigation Bureau. It was a woman claiming that she knew who had poisoned Bob's beer. When asked to elaborate, the woman hung up. Not long after, she called again, made the same claim and again cut the call short. The CIB's Chief Superintendent, Joe Ramos, told the press that this mysterious caller might be the key to the inquiry and he asked her to come forward. Instead, she made another call on Thursday afternoon, this time to Dr. Greenberg's surgery. The doctor's receptionist answered and the mystery woman said over and over, I know who poisoned Bobby Lullum. Trying to keep her on the line, the receptionist patched the call through to Dr. Greenberg, but when he picked up, the woman had hung up. The Sun's front page headline on Friday the 24th of July read, Ghost Voice again claims, I know. From his hospital bed, Bobby said he was stunned that someone was out to kill him. He told The Sun, quote, I just haven't a clue. It has me beaten. I have thought and thought about it night and day, but have no idea who could have done it. I have lain back in bed, in pain from my stomach and legs, and turned everything over in my mind. It looks as though I will never know. I will watch my step when I get out of hospital. A photo showed him with a pained smile, eyes looking bewildered, laying back in bed with his hair a halo on his pillow. But that hair, his pride and joy, could now be pulled out by the handful. Even so, Bob was happy to speak to every reporter who asked and pose for every photographer who pointed a camera his way, so every day there were new front page exclusives. On the 25th of July, he told the Daily Telegraph about his symptoms. Quote, I try to eat, but everything I eat, I vomit up. He had continuous nagging pain in his stomach, knee joints and feet. Quote, the only way I can describe the pain in my stomach is to say it is just an ordinary bellyache. It's the sort of bellyache you get if you eat about half a dozen green apples. The only way I can describe the pain in my knee joints is that it hurts just like when you get a hard bump on the knee playing football. The pains in my legs and feet are not as bad now as they were when I came into hospital. At least Bob wasn't going through this ordeal alone. As he spoke to the Daily Telegraph's reporter, Judy was sitting on the edge of the bed and holding his hand, and her mother Veronica was sitting beside her. 
Despite his pain, the paper reported that Bob was smiling and cracking jokes. While he was still sick, he said overall he felt better mentally since the doctors had said he'd recover, though he did admit he'd been in a pretty dark place for a while there. Quote, Every now and then a nasty doubt enters my mind. But even when I get these thoughts, I don't feel anywhere near as low as I did when I came into the hospital last Tuesday. When I found out I had thallium poisoning, I got such a shock that I didn't know what to think. For a while, I thought I'd be certain to die. But I think the shock of knowing what was wrong with me was mostly to blame for thinking that. The next day, the Sunday Telegraph's front page featured a picture of pretty Judy planting a kiss on Bobby, and the accompanying article said that he might be released from hospital in a fortnight. Bob told the Sunday Telegraph's reporter, quote, The news is wonderful, just so long as I can get home. They've treated me wonderfully here, but I want to get out. I'd give a lot to be able to go training with Balmain Club next week. I will be too, just as soon as I'm fit again. Judy chimed in, Two weeks. It's wonderful news, dear. Bob was certain to recover and be released because doctors had finally concluded that he'd consumed 0.6 of a gram of thallium sulfate. Bob said, quote, The doctors told me that one gram would be a fatal dose. While he still couldn't fathom how the poison had gotten into his beer at the pub, Bob said he wouldn't be taking any chances in the future. Quote, I'm off the beer for life. On Wednesday the 29th of July, Sydney police had the breakthrough they'd been looking for when they found the ghost voice who'd been calling the CIB. She was a 48-year-old woman from Darlinghurst, and she was still drunk after a days-long bender that had been triggered by an argument with her husband. While on the drink, she decided that she wanted to be, quote, mixed up in the mystery and had started making her series of hoax calls to the cops and to Dr. Greenberg. The woman knew nothing about Bob Lullum's case. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Two days later, the CIB got another call from another woman. This woman was sobbing when she told the constable who answered, quote, there has been thallium put into the milk at Lullum's home. My husband is jealous of the lot of them. He is out to get them. When the policeman asked who was speaking and where the call was being made from, the woman hung up. That day, the CIB also received a letter card postmarked at the GPO. The message, the contents of which weren't made public, related to the case and was comprised of letters and words cut out from newspapers in the style of a ransom note. Newspaper stories about Bob's condition continued. On the 1st of August, he told reporters that he needed to buy a hat because he now had several bald patches. Doctors had told him that all of his hair was going to fall out before it began to grow back. Bob was a good sport about this, letting the Sun photographer take snaps of his thinning hair and the newspaper would run a three-picture strip that showed his progression towards baldness. Yet after that, 
the newspaper exclusives suddenly dried up. Bob was still in hospital, but he wasn't talking anymore, nor were those closest to him. That's because behind the scenes, Detective Sergeant Davis and Detective Paul had made a real breakthrough. They had two people they needed to interview. Late on the afternoon of Thursday the 6th of August, those people came voluntarily to the CIB for questioning. After these two women had made their statements, Detective Sergeant Davis and Detective Paul knew they'd solved the case. Judy Lullum burst into tears as her mother, Veronica Mabel Monty, was charged with using rat poison to try to murder Bob Lullum. After Veronica was charged, a policewoman escorted her to a cell at Central Police Station. She cooled her heels there for a while before being taken to Central Court where she was formally charged. Veronica was remanded until the 14th of August when a committal hearing would be held. As this was a charge of attempted murder, Veronica was deemed eligible for bail, but it was set at the astronomical figure of £1,000. Simply adjusted for inflation, this is about $35,000 today. But a more reflective measure is that in 1953, the minimum male wage was £11 a week, and £1,000 could be half of what you paid for a house. If Veronica could find the money, she'd be allowed to live in the ride home she'd shared with Judy and Bob so long as she reported to ride police once a day until the committal hearing. Even though she'd been charged with trying to murder her daughter's husband, Veronica in court told the magistrate she thought that Judy could and would find the £1,000 for bail. She was right about that. Despite their shock and bewilderment, Judy and her father Alf remained supportive and did their best to get the cash together. But they couldn't do it immediately and so Veronica spent a night in her cell at Central Police Station. At 9.30 the next morning, Alf ponied up £1,000 in fives and tens and Judy signed the bail bond. The Sun's photographer was on hand to snap Judy, looking pretty composed and rather fashionable, escorting her mother, who was shielding her face with a newspaper, out of the central police court before they headed home to the house in Ryde. The Bob Lullum case had already been a newspaper sensation. But this latest development was simply startling, and from here, the story was only going to get stranger. The obvious question was, why would Veronica want to poison her son-in-law? Yet now that charges had been laid, newspapers were legally limited in what they could print, lest they prejudice Veronica's right to a fair trial. Even so, she gave them a new sensation just 24 hours after being released on bail. On the afternoon of Saturday the 8th of August, she was rushed by Judy and Alf to Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, where Bob was still recovering in his hospital bed. No one was saying anything about what was wrong with Veronica. For the past two weeks, she'd been happy to talk to reporters. Now, she didn't want anything to do with them, nor did she want any visitors to her hospital room where she was being guarded by two police officers. All that day's newspapers could report was that she'd been taken to hospital for, quote, certain tests. After Judy left her mother, she went to her husband's hospital room and the son's reporter followed. Bob didn't want to talk and he didn't want a journalist bothering Judy. Quote, My wife has had more than enough to put up with and it is unfair that she should be worried anymore. 
The next day, Sunday's son would also report, quote, Asked to comment on her mother's admittance to hospital, Mrs. Lullum said, What can I say? I am shocked and upset by all that has happened these past few weeks that I feel there is nothing more I can say. There was a lot more she could have said because so much had already been said privately. And Bob and Judy and Veronica had to know there was no way of stopping what was coming. The first of these revelations came almost immediately when the Sunday newspapers reported that Veronica was suffering thallium poisoning. Just over a week later, on Wednesday the 19th of August, after nearly a month in hospital, Bob had finally recovered enough to be sent home. As he walked out of the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, his suit swam on him because he'd lost two stone during those horrible weeks when he hadn't been able to keep down solid food. Bob was also wearing a hat to hide the fact that he was now mostly bald. At least he still had Judy, who was there to hold his arm as they made their way to a taxi that was going to take them to their home in Ride. Bob told a reporter from The Sun, quote, I feel great. I've been waiting a long time for this day. It's good to be going home. Judy said she was happy and excited to be taking Bob home to nurse him back to health. Quote, This is a wonderful day. Bobby coming home is the best news I've had. What neither of them commented on was the fact that Veronica had allegedly tried to murder him with thallium and that she was still in this very hospital recovering from the effects of having ingested the very same poison. But hearing from them about that would have to wait until they appeared as witnesses at Veronica's committal hearing, which, due to her poisoning, had been rescheduled for the 9th of September. On Saturday the 22nd of August, three days after Bob walked out of Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, Veronica Mabel Monty was also released. Turned out, she'd only ingested a small amount of thallium. Though she'd been charged with trying to murder Bob, she now went to live at the ride house that he was sharing with Judy. That night, a Sunday Telegraph reporter paid a visit, presumably to see how that domestic arrangement was working out. While the lights were on in the front room of the ride home, the shades were drawn. When the front door opened, it was Alf Monty who appeared. Referring to his estranged wife, the mother of his daughter, accused murderer Veronica, Alf said, quote, Mrs. Monty is not seeing anybody. Speaking of his daughter, he added, and Mrs. Lullum is not seeing anybody either. As for Bob, he also wasn't seeing visitors because he wasn't there. Three days earlier, when Bob had been released from hospital, he and Judy had played the happy couple, with him looking forward to going home and her looking forward to nursing him. But once they were in the taxi and out of sight of reporters, they'd rendezvoused with Bob's parents, who'd whisked him back to the family home in Tuncurry on the New South Wales mid-north coast. Bob's mum and dad had experienced their fair share of heartbreak. Victor had nearly been killed at Gallipoli and he'd lost one brother and had another one grievously wounded during World War I. As young parents, one of their twin sons died the day after he was born while the other had gone to New Guinea in the Second World War though happily he'd come back in one piece. Now, their youngest boy Bob had nearly been murdered by his wife's mother, a woman they knew. It had to be bewildering and worrying beyond belief. 
Not that the Sunday Telegraph reporter got any sense of that when, learning Bob wasn't at the ride home, he called the Lullum House in Tunkurry to get the scoop. On the other end of the line, Bob seemed bright and cheerful. He said he hadn't thought too much about going back to work, though he admitted, quote, I have to get back soon. I'll be back into training for football next year. He was thinking about rugby league a lot, quote, my team, Balmain, play their last game of the season against South Sydney on Saturday. I wouldn't be surprised if Balmain rolled them. Bob said his hair was growing back and he was trying to put weight back on with North Coast seafood. Quote, The oysters are not too fat yet, but they taste good. The local fishermen are loading in the lobsters and so am I. I spend most of the time pottering around and keeping myself out of mischief. I was born and bred up here. It's the cream of the coast. I've seen all my old mates. Bob made it seem like a holiday from care, but his hair had to be in danger of falling out all over again simply from the stress he was keeping secret from the press. After Bob's interview with the Sunday Telegraph, the story went quiet again for two weeks till Veronica's committal hearing on Wednesday the 9th of September 1953. It was a grey morning, and as the fashionably dressed Veronica walked up the stone steps at Sydney's Central Police Court, she was blitzed by the flashing and popping bulbs of eight newspaper photographers. Crowds of sightseers jammed the colonnade, but Veronica swept by, seemingly unperturbed. The Sun newspaper remarked, Few Hollywood celebrities would have excited more interest, and none could have carried the occasion better. Outside the public section of Number 3 Court, some hundred people, two-thirds of them women, crowded around in the hope of getting a seat in the gallery. When the door opened just before 10 o'clock, they swarmed inside. The sun again, quote, You saw an almost frightening side of humanity as they ran to the barrier for choice positions, and elderly women pushed under the barrier and hurried to well-placed benches like bargain hunters at a sale of sensations. These spectators set themselves up with their knitting, their shopping bags, and their packed lunches. Reporters noted many familiar faces, with a number of these women having last month been present at the committal hearing that saw Caroline Grills ordered to stand trial for committing four Thallium murders. Before they entered court, Bob and Judy Lullum were again putting up a brave face, seen waiting together, occasionally holding hands. Veronica entered by a side door and was met by her solicitor, Jack Tom. Chief Stipendry Magistrate Denton asked for her plea and Veronica said she was not guilty. Thirteen witnesses were scheduled and the first was Detective Sergeant George Davis. Taking the stand, he related the chronology of the case leading up to the interview with Veronica Monty in Judy's presence at the CIB on the 6th of August. Detective Sergeant Davis told the court that Veronica had told him she'd lived with Judy and Bob since June 1952, having moved in after she'd had an operation and after she and her husband Alf had separated. According to Veronica, even though Bob and Judy had only been married just over six months, the relationship, in her opinion, wasn't working out, and it was Bob's fault because he didn't take much interest in his wife or their home. Veronica claimed she'd tried to talk to Bob about this, but he'd just become annoyed. 
In her version of events, she was worried that they might split up and because the house was wholly in Bob's name, Judy would be left with nothing, a prospect she feared for herself if Alf divorced her. Veronica told Detective Sergeant Davis she'd offered to pay the solicitor's fee for the transfer of the ride home into both Bob and Judy's names. Detective Sergeant Davis had asked her why she thought the marriage was drifting apart and she allegedly replied, quote, Well, Bob has been getting home late from training and one morning I found lipstick and makeup on his shirt and every football match we go to, Gwen Stewart is there. Veronica said she'd told Judy about her suspicions but that her daughter trusted Bob too much. Then, on the night of Friday of the 26th of June 1953, after Judy went to bed, Bob and Veronica sat up listening to the radio broadcast of the second cricket test from Lords. They again discussed his and Judy's supposed marital problems. Bob told Veronica everything had been ironed out, but she claimed that Judy was still unhappy. Hearing this, Bob said he was going to go and talk to his wife right then and there to clear the air. Veronica's reply was that he should just let Judy sleep and that he should sit with her on the couch and listen to the cricket. At this point in the hearing, Detective Sergeant Davis knew, obviously, what he was going to say next. So did Veronica and Judy and Bob. The magistrate, the spectators and the reporters, they had no idea that this already strange case was about to become, in truth's words, one of the most sensational cases ever heard at Central Court. Detective Sergeant Davis continued his evidence, telling the court of his interview with Veronica at the CIB, quote, I asked her, Is it true that you informed Judy on the night of July 27 that you and Bob had been intimate one night when you and he were listening to the cricket test and again on the day he came home from work sick? Mrs. Monty said, Yes. Detective Sergeant Davis continued his testimony saying, quote, I then asked, did intercourse take place on both of these occasions? And she replied, yes. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to the Forgotten Australia episode, The Poisoned Footy Player. The third and final instalment of this episode will be released on Friday. So make sure you're subscribed to get it as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Not just because I love hearing what you think, but also because it helps the algorithm thingamajig recommend Forgotten Australia to other listeners. To see photos and articles relating to this and other Forgotten Australia episodes, go to ForgottenAustralia.com and the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. This podcast was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening and take care of yourself. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.